Good morning. We'll take a brief uh, series here. Tom's going to go through, I think, a, a couple of Sundays on Jesus the Messiah. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. The Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abahud, Abahud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Iliad. Iliad was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Heavenly Father, thank you that from the time of recorded history, you have been telling us of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. May we see him in all of the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Joe did really well with all those names. Uh, I noticed especially that he, that he carefully did not pr pronounce S-A-L-M-O-N, salmon. <laughs> We are going to do a, a series on the Holy Spirit, the person work of the Holy Spirit, before we launch into 2 Corinthians. But for these two Sundays, before we have a couple of, of extended worship times, just before Christmas and New Year's, we decided to do something a little different, and that's to focus on, on Jesus, Jesus Messiah, the son of David. Uh, Old Testament this week, New Testament next week. Now, you may be then thinking, well, why did I just have Joe read from the first page of the New Testament? Well, the reason is that, that Matthew's genealogy at the very beginning of the New Testament does an amazingly good job of 
of giving us a retrospective, a look back at the lineage that leads up to Christ, the Old Testament lineage, and then the time, some during the intertestamental period. Matthew looks, the way that Matthew looks back actually draws our attention to the promise that is the focus of, of this message and the next one. The promise of the King of Kings and the Savior of mankind who would come and take on our humanity and on, on the side of his flesh he would be from, from the line of King David. Matthew begins his genealogy in a, in a very surprising way. Instead of starting from the, from the beginning of the lineage and going forward, he starts from the end of the lineage and he goes two giant steps backward. The first giant step is from Jesus to David. That, that, that encompasses a period of roughly a thousand years. And then after he takes that step, he goes back another giant step from David to Abraham. <laughs> he says, the record of the genealogy of <clears throat> Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Then, in 14 generations times three, in groupings of 14 generations times three, he works his way forward through the genealogy from Abraham to Jesus. The first of those 14 groupings is from Abraham to David. The second is from David to the exile of Judah into, uh, into captivity in Babylon. The third grouping of 14 generations is from that exile to Jesus, the one he says was the one who was born, who was called the Christ, the Messiah. I find it, uh, I want to point out here that in that very last generation, there is a, a, a marked deviation from the pattern, right? Because every other man that's mentioned in this genealogy became the father of somebody until you get to Joseph. And then it simply says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. It's illuminating, um, and that, that's going to be important when we start looking through some of these prophecies, but it's illuminating that uh, in this genealogy of Jesus, the name Jesus is used two times, the name Abraham is used three times, the title Christ or Messiah is used three times, and the name David is used five times. I find it also illuminating that in the entire Old Testament, the name Abram or Abraham is used a grand total of 216 times. The name David is used a total of 945 times. Now, considering all the references to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's a little surprising to some. And by the way, that excludes the 76 times that David's name is mentioned in the, in the opening remarks of the Psalms, which were apparently added by the Masoretes and not part of the original text. So those aren't in that 945. That's a lot of references. In fact, get this, guys. Of all the proper names in the Old Testament, the one that is used the second most often is David. Anyone want to guess the first most often? Yahweh. It's not even close. The name Yahweh is used 
roughly 7,000 times in the Old Testament. 7,000. Every time you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible, that's Yahweh. Every time you see capital G, capital O, capital D, that's Yahweh. Okay, It's a lot of times. If repetition is theological glue, as has often been said, then I have to conclude that the Holy Spirit wants us to know that what the Bible tells us about David reveals a whole lot to us about what God is doing in the Bible, in the events that are recorded in the Bible. Because David is central to what's going on in both Testaments. Now, what did mankind lose? I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning. What did mankind lose when Adam sinned against God in the garden? Peace. <laughs> yeah, we talked about peace this morning. It's a big part of it. In short, everything that constitutes life and blessing. But I'm going to break it into three big pieces. The first is relationship with God. And that's what spiritual life is. It's relationship with God. Personal, intimate communion between God and his image bearers whom he created for relationship with himself. The second big piece that that mankind lost at the fall is a place shared with God. A place shared with God. This is about proximity, physical proximity to the presence of God. God and man occupying the same space, walking and working together in the garden. You remember God bringing the animals to Adam so that he could name them? And the third, put these two together, is provision and protection. Uh, You might say blessing that covers all bases that are not in those first two points. Uh, Every need met in abundance. Security. Agency without opposition. Man doing God's work, God's way, in the place that God prepared for man without opposition and without threat from created things or created beings. What created things and created beings? Well, they're all around us, right? Thorns, thistles, weeds, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Mold, mildew, bacteria, viruses, fire ants, and don't forget other men, other men and women. And of course, we lost physical immortality, physical life. Uh, All mankind now already spiritually dead from day one of, of, of of our sin became destined to die physically as well. Adam lasted more than 800 years after that, but then he died. The rest of the Bible, starting in that same third chapter of Genesis in which we find the fall and the curse, the rest of the Bible, starting in that chapter, lays out God's plan to redeem all that God cursed on that day. It was said in the worship this morning that our conflict, our foremost conflict is not with any created thing or created being. Our foremost conflict is with God. The curse came from God. It didn't slip in under the, under the curtain. It came from God. And God is the one who alone brings about redemption from the curse. This morning we're going to do a flyover through the Old Testament, and we're not going to, it's not going to be comprehensive. It's going to be highlights. To track God's plan of redemption through three promises 
of one seed. Three promises of one seed. The word seed in each of these promises, each of these passages that we're going to see is, is singular. But it's collective singular. As we'll see the promises unfold, the promised seed is both plural and singular, but it is the one seed, the singular seed, who is the focus and the cause of the redemption. The, the three promises of one seed are these three. The promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of, of Abraham, which covers several chapters in Genesis, chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, and then is restated, passed down to Abraham's son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob, and then to all of Israel. And then finally, the promised seed of David, and that's where we're going to spend the most time, the promised seed of David. 2 Samuel 7 is where that promise is first presented. I'm going to let the Word of God do a lot of the talking this morning from this point on. Um, and if you're one of those who likes to take notes in order to kind of keep track, you're going to lose it if you try to do that. Uh, you can write down some scripture references, but this PowerPoint will be available. Just ask me, uh, ask Belen, or Debbie Johnson will get it to you after, after uh, Monday. One other very important ground rule, my brother Jim Ellis made, <laughs> reminded me to make sure that I make a point out of this. All of the promises that we're going to see that are made to Israel and Judah in the Old Testament find their ultimate and perfect fulfillment in the church. Those who are the children of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they are the ones to whom these promises become given and effective and active. Romans 9, verse 8, Paul says, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as seed, as descendants. Galatians 3, 28 says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free man, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And it's, it makes it clear that it is only those who are of the faith of Abraham who belong to Christ and receive the promises that were made to Abraham. All right, the first promise is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. Before God cursed the woman and the man, he cursed the serpent who is the, the form that was taken by Satan. You can go back to, you can go to the end of Revelation and you'll see that the serpent of old, that's Satan, Satan. It's really not a mystery. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. The seed of the woman. Who's the woman? And who's the seed? And first I want to say that the word bruise that's used here, uh, that's kind of the root meaning of the word, but I think there's a lot more going on than just a bruise. In uh, Romans 16, 19 to 21, what does it say? It says, <laughs> it says, 
Be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will soon do what to Satan? Crush him. He will crush him under your feet. But in case, just in case we think it's that we're the ones doing the crushing, that, that you know, the, real, he, the next thing he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's, he's the one who, who does the, the crushing. All right. So these are serious injuries. One is to the heel of the seed of the woman. The other is to the head of Satan. I believe with all my heart, uh, as do very many others, that the woman that is at issue here is not Eve. It's Mary. And if you go back to the end of that the end of that genealogy in that last generation, you, you remember I mentioned that the only one involved in the, in the beginning of Jesus in that genealogy in that generation is not Joseph, it's Mary, it's the woman. And that's highly unusual because to, to talk about uh, the, the man coming from the woman in a genealogy because in two chapters after Genesis 3 and Genesis 5 in the genealogy that goes from Adam to Noah, there's no women mentioned by name. It's just this man beget this man and this man beget this man, okay? That's the normal progression. Now you've got this, this seed of the woman. Are you with me? I'm not losing you here. This is unusual. It stands out. And God is getting our attention with this. And he's pointing way forward. He's pointing to Christ. Now, the second promise of one seed is God's promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Let's look at Genesis 12, the first few verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, this before he changed his name to Abraham, before God changed it, go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. A few verses later, it says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your seed, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. There are three essential parts to the Abrahamic promise. And it's, it's expanded and developed in later passages. Three essential parts, land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. The folks that come to the Thursday night study know that's, that's drilled into them so much that they probably think it in their sleep. Land, seed, and blood. The land is the place. Place set apart by God for God to dwell with his people. The seed is, well, it's collective plural. So it applies to the Israelites that came forth from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the focal point of the seed is singular, and Paul makes that crystal clear in Galatians. And that's, that seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessing is, at its very core, relationship with God. It is those first three things that we saw. Person, place, and provision. Provision and protection. Person, place, provision, and protection. We're going to talk about those three things a lot as we proceed. All right. 
The third promise of one seed is God, God's promise to David. God's promise to David. And the seed form of that promise is actually quite a while before David. It's in Genesis chapter 49. When, when Jacob gave his patriarchal blessing to his 12 sons, who should have, by normal course of action, who should have gotten the preeminent blessing? First would be Reuben, who was the firstborn. Well, it wasn't him. Second, based on the history of what had happened leading up to that point, who would you expect maybe if it wasn't Reuben? Joseph. God had used Joseph to save not only Israel, but Egypt and all the nations that, that, are, that existed that were of consequence in that era. It wasn't Joseph. He didn't get the preeminent blessing. It was Judah. And here's the blessing that Jacob gave to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? You ever heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah? Yes. Revelation chapter 7. That's the last book of the Bible. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. In that promise, Jacob is saying to Judah, Judah, your brothers, the other 11 tribes, they're all going to bow down to you. They're all going to praise you. And it won't just be them. Your hand will be on the neck of all your enemies. And then one will come from you, Judah, and to him will be the obedience of all the peoples. Everybody. This is a promise of kingship. It's a promise of dominion. It's a promise of victory. It's a promise of also of abundant provision. Those last couple of verses are not about a drunken ruler. Those last couple of verses are about abundance that is so great that, <laughs> that wine is everywhere. And if you follow the imagery of abundance of wine through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, including the first miracle of Jesus, if you follow the imagery of the abundance of wine, it is always over and over and over. It is about, it is about redemption, restoration, and Messiah. And of course, milk, also abundance of milk, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a, this is a, a promise about, <laughs> about God restoring what was lost at the fall. The actual promise from God to David is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I'm going to show you the dates for each of these promises from this point. Actually, on that last one, you'll notice the date was about 1440 B.C. when Jacob made that promise to um, to Judah. Now we're at about 1050 BC, and God, through the prophet Nathan, says to David, He says to Nathan, You shall say to my servant David, remember that phrase, my servant David, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. Okay, so it's the shepherd king, remember that. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed, your descendant, singular, after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. If you have trouble seeing how that could apply to Christ, bear with me. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom, David, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. The near-term fulfillment of that promise was Solomon. Solomon, the first king after David in, over Judah, Israel and Judah, ruled during the time of the greatest unity, the greatest glory, and the greatest influence in the history of, of the Israelites. At that time, that was the preeminent kingdom on the earth. But Solomon's rule did not last forever, so it can't be the final fulfillment of this promise because this promise says forever, forever, forever. In the first generation after Solomon, the kingdom was divided into two, Israel and Judah. Israel's and Judah's place in the land promised by God was continually threatened by numerous and powerful enemies. The perfect fulfillment of this promise is Christ. And if you wonder how that one verse, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. If you wonder how that could apply to Christ, think hard about what happened at the cross. At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ bore not just the payment for our sin, he bore the guilt of our sin. Okay? Every sin that everyone who trusts in Jesus has ever committed or ever will commit was laid on Christ. He was as unclean as unclean could be because he bore our uncleanness. And he suffered at the hands of men. Relationship with God during the reign of Solomon was still lost except to those who trusted in the promises that would be fulfilled in Christ. Place with God was far more about place with God for God's people at that time under the law of Moses was far more about barriers than it was about access. Read Hebrews 10. Provision from God was it was in the midst of a curse in which there was much opposition from nature, from animals, from people. 
around 700 BC, less than 300 years and only about 80 years longer than the United States has been a sovereign nation, God began to drive Israel out of the land. First, the northern tribes taken away to Assyria and then the southern tribes taken away to Babylon. When the northern tribes were being taken away, those were the days of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Let me point out that all of the remaining passages that we're going to see this morning that speak about David were written after David was dead. All of the passages we're going to see from this point forward were after David was dead and buried and still in his grave. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 8 You know this one from Handel's Messiah. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity is the literal rendering there. Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it in justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. If you want to say forever, that's a good way to say it. From then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The great light who will overcome the darkness would come and be born as a child, a son. He would rule as king on the throne of David. His kingdom will be filled with the blessings of peace and justice and righteousness that he himself will uphold and establish. And his throne and his kingdom will last forever. This is after David's long gone. That, by the way, is about 700 B.C. Now we're at 590 B.C., roughly, during the days of Jeremiah, the prophet, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Ah. Think about that for a minute. His name will be Yahweh, our righteousness. Whose righteousness is our righteousness? God's, Christ's. The Yahweh here is Christ, the great I am. He will bring salvation and security. He will do justice and righteousness in the place that God has prepared for his people. A few chapters later, 10 chapters later in Jeremiah, also about 590 B.C., somewhere in that range. Chapter 33, verses 11 to 21, and I'm going to do just some excerpts from this. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there will again be in this place, which is waste without man or beast, and all its cities a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David 
to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he shall be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. There it is again. Whose, righteous, whose righteousness is our righteousness? Christ. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And then here's, a, here's, a, here's where that goes next. And this is fascinating. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that the day and the night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant will also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. So what do you have to do to get rid of God's covenant promise of the, of the son of David, the Messiah, who would come as the righteous branch from the line of David. All you have to do is get rid of the day and the night. This is more certain than tomorrow's sunrise. The one who will reign on the throne of David will be a son of David, and his reign will never end. And here's, when you get to Ezekiel, this just gets mind-blowing, guys. Because now the prophecies stop referring to a branch from David and they start calling that branch David. My servant David. Like we saw back in the promise that God gave to David. My servant David. This doesn't mean David is resurrected. It doesn't mean David is reincarnated. It means that David, that all that God did with David was to point to Christ. David is the, he is the, the great type and foreshadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 34, verses 23 to 31. By the way, this is after God indicts all the shepherds of Israel and Judah and says they're doing a lousy job. In fact, they're consuming his sheep. They're devouring his sheep. And he says, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them, literally in the midst of them. He will be prince in the midst of them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and will eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season, and they will be showers of blessing. Also, the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure in the land on their land. They will know that I am Yahweh when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslave them. They will no longer be a prey to the nations and the beasts of the earth will not devour them, but they will live securely and no one will make them afraid. I will establish for them a renowned planting place and they will not again be victims of famine in the land. They will not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Then they will know that I, Yahweh their God, am with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men and I am your God, declares the Lord God. And this, 
This last passage from Ezekiel is where the mind-blowing goes up to the, the highest level. This brings together covenant promises to, to Abraham and to David, and it brings all that together with the new covenant, promises of the new covenant. Listen to this. Ezekiel 37, 21 to 28, and this is about 575 BC. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side, and I'll bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with their transgressions. They'll stop sinning. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances, and they will keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. And I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Person, place, provision, protection. Land, seed, blessing, same, same person, place, and provision, same thing. These promises that start in Genesis 3 are all moving in the same direction and they're all talking about the same person. And I've said this more times, I know you're sick of hearing this, but guys, the reason, the Bible is its own greatest apologetic. You cannot get two or three historians to agree on something after it's after it's happened, much less dozens of men writing over a period of more than 1,500 years, all saying the same things about the same person from beginning to end with perfect unanimity. The Bible that you hold in your hands and have on your phones is a miracle. There's nothing like it in the world. It cannot be the contrivance of men. It cannot. It is the revelation of God to mankind, and it is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one that will bring about the redemption of mankind and creation from the curse that we brought about because of our sin. Relationship with God, communion with God, nearness to God in the place that he has prepared for us, provision from God, security and protection from God. All these things are promised to those who believe the promises that are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. About done here, but I want to say another thing, and that is a lot of people wrestle with how does an Old Testament saint get saved if they don't know the whole story about Jesus? 
You go back to, to God's declaration about Abraham in Genesis 15. He believed God and God reckoned his faith as righteousness. Paul has a lot to say about that in Romans chapter 4. I'm convinced that, that in every generation of God's people, starting with the first generation, those who believe the promises that are fulfilled in Christ are saved. Because those are gospel promises. You, you see what I'm saying? The, and those promises go from beginning to end in the Bible. And the people who trusted in those promises instead of in themselves, who looked for a redeemer from God, who looked for deliverance from their sin from God, who believed that what God said in Leviticus 17, 11 about the sacrifices, it is, you haven't given this to me, I have given it to you. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement for your souls. Amen. And that's just a picture. That's just a picture of the only perfect sacrifice. Every, I could go on, guys, I could go on until sometime tomorrow night, and we wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface. The Bible is about the, the plan of redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ from cover to cover. And I, and I hope you're seeing that here. Now, I'm going to finish with these, with, with these few passages from Zechariah. Now we're all the way up to 520 B.C. This is after the Babylonian exile. This is after God has sent many of the Judahites back from Babylon to begin rebuilding Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. God says to the prophet Zechariah, to Israel through the or to Judah through the prophet, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in, in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, <laughs> and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's not the Redeemer that Israel wanted. But that's the Redeemer that we got. And praise God, because if he hadn't come the first time to seek and save the lost, his kingdom would have one person in it. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. <laughs> this very day I'm declaring that I will restore double to you. Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then Zechariah, I'll finish with this. Zechariah 14, 1 through 4. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And, on, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that Half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And Yahweh will be king over all, over all the earth. In that day, Yahweh will be the only one 
and His name, the only one. Beloved, I'll say again, the promise of the person, the place, and the provision and protection that can come only from God is, is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. All the Scriptures point to Him. He is the one seed promised to mankind through whom we are taken out of the darkness and brought into the light and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Loving Father, thank You for, for this, this mighty and miraculous testimony that You've given to us that the one whom we worship is the one whom You have been telling mankind about since the very first generation of mankind and since, since we first turned our back on You and rebelled against You. Father, I pray that anyone here who is depending in any way on himself or herself or on any other thing to make, to make them right with You, Father, that they would, they would abandon they would abandon that illusion and they would count as true that the one and only provision for our sin, the one and only Redeemer, is, is the King of kings, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the perfect God-Man who came down from heaven to earth and took on our humanness and lived for 33 years among the miserable likes of us and then went to the cross to die in our place to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. I pray that each person here and each person in the hearing of this will trust only, only in the long-promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in His name, Lord, that we pray. Amen.